0: Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. we we'll get started with Dr. Sternberg's lecture. And hopefully if you have any questions again, uh, please post them in the uh, question or the chat. Function and um, hopefully she'll be here and we can uh, talk about those. I um, just
1: so we'll for the opportunity to speak to you today, I'm going to speak about therapy for advanced urethelial cancer.
2: These are my disclosures. I want to speak about progress, immunotherapy,
1: combination chemotherapy with immunotherapy antibody drug conjugates, and FGFR inhibition. If you look at the progress in the last 30 years, there really were no new drugs or much happening since the development of the MvAC chemotherapy regimen, and then the approval of cisplatin and gemcitabine. We really were at a standstill for a very long time. Things have changed dramatically now, And if you look over the last few years, we've had approval of five new
2: immunotherapeutic agents, five.
0: Apologies, we're just trying to figure out this lecture. Give us one second.
1: Five new immunotherapeutic agents. Five. An approval of adafetinib, an FGFR inhibitor, and infortumabvidotin, an antibody drug conjugate. We know that the somatic mutations by tumor type can be very high, and bladder cancer is very similar to lung cancer and melanoma, which is why it does respond. To immunotherapy. And with the new classification for molecular markers, we know that perhaps the luminal infiltrated and the basal squamous are those that respond best to checkpoint inhibitors, whereas the luminal papillary tumors are those that may respond best to FGFR inhibition. Now, if we look at the immune checkpoint inhibitors in the platinum refractory setting, After combination chemotherapy with platinum, they have been approved based upon phase three trials, phase two trials, and even phase one trials. We really can't make any head to head comparisons among the trials, but we can say in general the overall response rate is approximately 20%, and they all have median overall survival that's more or less similar with grade three and four side effects, again, somewhat similar, but it's very difficult to compare or make head-to-head comparisons. The first trial was the atezolizumab trial in platinum refractory metastatic urothelial cancer, and at that time it was thought that response and overall survival was dependent upon the PDL one status. Those with immunohistochemistry, two and three, and you can see from the blue line, seemed to be the ones who were responding the best. But very soon afterwards, we realized that actually all patients respond in the platinum refractory setting and that the pdl one status was not really that indicative.
2: From the Rosenberg data, it looked like the luminal infiltrated patients were the ones who responded the best.
1: But then we had the nivolumab data and other data from checkpoint 275 showing that the basal squamous subgroup were those that responded best.
2: We also know that mutational load
1: seems to be very important in urothelial cancer perhaps just as important as pdl one expression, and that the mutational load is significantly increased in responders versus non-responders. Rosenberg and his colleagues have looked at 60 patients treated on monotherapy, immunotherapy trials, and what they saw was that alterations in DNA damage response and repair genes were associated with response to checkpoint blockade and survival, and that patients with DDR deleterious mutations had up to an
2: 80% overall response rate.
1: This is Keynote 45, the randomized trial of Pembrolizumab in patients who are platinum refractory who have failed one to two lines of prior platinum-based chemotherapy. Patients were randomized between pembrolizumab and investigator choice of chemotherapy, either paclitaxel, docetaxel, or vinflunine. Pembrolizumab was given for two years. What was seen was a clear 27% reduction in the risk of death. And in the platinum refractory setting, the CPS, the combined positive score, looking at the tumor cells and the immune cells, didn't really seem to make a
2: difference. These data have been
1: updated recently with more than two years of follow-up. And you can see that there is a long tail to the end of the curve, and that many patients remain in complete response, many for many many years, even though they've stopped the pembrolizumab after two years. I have such patients that I'm really very proud to follow. I never saw that kind of responses that long of a time in the past. The atezolizumab phase three trial was similar to the pembrolizumab trial, but it was designed at a time when they thought that the immunohistochemistry two and three population were the only ones that were really going to benefit. For this reason, the two and three population were the only ones that were really going to benefit. For this reason, the way the primary endpoint was designed was that they would look at the overall survival in the immunohistochemistry 2 and 3 population. And if this was positive, they wouldn't do any other statistical analysis. And as you may know, this was a negative study, even though there is a tail at the end of the curve. I'm going to switch now from platinum refractory to patients who are first-line cisplatin-ineligible, meaning they have poor renal function or poor performance status, neuropathy, elderly patients. Most of them have poor renal function. And you can see that the two drugs that have been approved are atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, albeit in different kinds of studies with different numbers of patients and patient characteristics with overall response rates that are nonetheless somewhat similar for the different patient populations. The same is true of overall survival. For cisplatin ineligible patients, the indication for both of these by the FDA and EMA has been largely restricted to those patients who express pdl one although the U.S. may be an exception. And this is an update of pembrolizumab in the cisplatin ineligible patients showing updated overall survival data by CPS score. Here you can see that in patients with a combined positive score of more than 10, there is a difference. Those patients actually do better than those with a combined positive immune score of PDL staining that is less. This is the sole study that we published last year in European urology. We enrolled almost 1,000 patients from 32 countries. Many patients who were not eligible to enter into the registration trials, patients with poor performance status or low creatinine clearance on dialysis, brain meds, patients with autoimmune disease or HIV positive were allowed into the study. The primary endpoint of the study was safety because these patients were actually being denied all chances of immunotherapy. What we saw from this study was that these patients actually didn't do poorly. They did fairly well. Even the patients with autoimmune disease really did rather well. The ones who did poorly were the patients with ECOG performance status of two. And as we know what happens in these studies, these patients may even have worse performance status than ECOG two, but are enrolled into the studies. Patients with brain metastases are the ones who did the worst. gu in February, we presented results in 23% of our patients that had upper tract urethelial cancer. It was thought that these patients do poorly, that they don't respond to chemotherapy. We wanted to see how did they respond to immune checkpoint blockade with atezolizumab. What we saw in 226 patients with upper tract urethelial cancer, part renal pelvis, and part ureteral cancer, was that they responded just the same as those with a bladder cancer primary. These are exploratory analyses of SAW, but they show very similar efficacy and safety data in upper tract urethelial cancer and bladder carcinoma, providing reassurance that atezolizumab is active and has an acceptable safety profile in patients with upper tract urethelial carcinoma, who generally were expected to have worse outcomes than patients with bladder carcinoma. There are many ongoing first-line phase three trials of checkpoint inhibition in combination with chemotherapy, also compared to checkpoint inhibition alone. And while these trials were ongoing, and most of them were completely accrued, the FDA mandated a stop of enrollment of any patients that were platinum-ineligible, unless they were pdl one positive, into particularly into the arm of checkpoint inhibition alone. Although we didn't have an approved diagnostic test at the time, I just want to focus for a minute on the Invigor 130 study because we have results from from that study presented at ESMO recently and on the Javelin Bladder 100 switch maintenance study. This is the Invigor 130 study that was presented at a plenary session at ESMO by Henri Grand last year. Arm A is atezolizumab plus platinum and gemcitabine. Arm B is atezolizumab alone. And Arm C is placebo and platinum and gemcitabine. You can see here the final progression-free survival was statistically significant in favor of the patients who received platinum and gemcitabine with atezolizumab as opposed to platinum and gemcitabine and placebo. These are interim overall survival data, and they did not cross the interim efficacy boundary for the O'Brien-Fleming alpha spending function. But again, these are interim overall survival data. But you can see there's an interesting trend here. If we look here at the hazard ratios, it looks like that most patients responded with the exception of the performance status two patients. They did well with the combination with atezolizumab. Here, there are fewer patients, but the patients with immunohistochemical two and three seem to do better. All of these do cross the hazard ratio of one. The paper's in press now. I'd like to speak for a moment about the Javelin 100 switch maintenance study. This is a phase three study in which patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial cancer are treated with four to six cycles of gemcitabine and platinum or carboplatin. If they have stable disease or CR or PR for four to 10 weeks, they were then randomized between Abelumab and Best Supportive Care alone, the primary endpoint being overall survival. And we were all quite pleased to see the press release of this trial has met its primary endpoint of overall survival at the planned interim analysis. These important data will be presented in the plenary session at the ASCO meeting. And Matt Galsky has worked with the Hoosier Oncology Group and had a smaller study that was similar that showed an improvement in progression-free survival with switch maintenance with pembrolizumab. I'd like to speak a moment about antibody drug conjugates. These are monoclonal antibodies conjugated to cytotoxic drug or radionuclei. They improve the potency and effectiveness of monoclonal antibodies and allow for targeted delivery of a toxic payload to the tumor cells, minimizing the nonspecific systemic toxicity. The one we've heard a lot about is infortimab the target being neptin-4, a transmembrane cell adhesion molecule. The linker is protease cleavable, and the payload is monomethyl or a statin E. You're all very impressed to hear Dan Petrolak first present an overall response rate of 44%, including 12% CR and 32% PR in pretreated patients. And these results were published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. This is now the first Nectin-4-directed antibody drug conjugate to already receive FDA approval. There's a phase three study that's almost or completely enrolled with infortimab compared to investigators' choice of chemotherapy, and we'll be hearing those results in the not-too-distant future. At asthma, we were all very pleasantly surprised to hear the results of the combination of infortimab-vidotin plus pembrolizumab in patients who were cisplatin-ineligible. There was a 71% response rate at GUASCO Rosenberg updated these results. The response rate is 73% now with a 15% CR rate, not dependent upon pdl one status with progression-free survival of 12.3 months. And although overall survival was not yet reached, 86% of patients were alive at one year. This is a small 45-patient study, but a larger study is ongoing as are combination trials with chemotherapy. Sazetuzumab-gobatekin is the other antibody drug conjugate that's being studied for urothelial cancer. The target here is Trope 2, a cell surface antigen that's highly expressed by many cancers. The linker here is hydrolyzable. The difference being with a hydrolyzable linker is that you have a payload being delivered not only to the tumor cell, but also to the microenvironment where there may be tumor as well. The payload is SN38, which is the active metabolite of a And there was first a large study with patients with advanced epithelial cancers. And in that study, they had 45 patients with metastatic urethelial cancer that had a 31% overall response rate. At ESMO, Scott Tagawa presented the results of another study, Trophy 1, looking just at metastatic urothelial cancer, where he showed that 70% 4% of patients demonstrated a reduction in their tumor size, and this is a combination of 80 patients that were treated first in the urothelial cohort of the more extensive study in which we have longer follow-up, plus the Tagawa Trophy 1 study. And you can see that when patients respond to this antibody drug conjugate, the responses are long-lasting, at least to 52 weeks, with more follow-up in the first study. But putting them together, you can see quite interesting results. A phase three study versus investigator's choice of therapy is planned, and this drug has just this week received approval by the FDA for triple negative breast cancer. This is the fibroblast growth factor receptor pathway. We know that FGFR3 and perhaps FGFR1 mutations are very important in urethelial cancer, FG... F23 is essential for phosphate homeostasis and FGFR inhibition will result in hyperphosphatemia. This is the erdaphotinib oral pan FGFR inhibitor. They evaluated different doses. The dose that was the best was eight milligrams daily. I'm looking at 99 patients treated with this dose of eight milligrams daily there were 75 evaluable patients with 8 milligrams daily. And looking at 99 patients treated with this dose of 8 milligrams daily, there were 75 evaluable patients treated that had reduction in the sum of their target lesions, an overall response rate of 40.4% and 37.4% were partial responses. And therefore this drug too has been approved for patients with FGFR mutations. It was thought that patients with FGFR alterations were not going to respond to immune checkpoint blockade. However, Wang and others have looked back retrospectively on the Invigor210 study and the Checkmate 275 trials. It seems to show that this observation is not true. Both patients that are FGFR3 wild-type and mutated can respond to immune checkpoint inhibition. I think this is important information to keep in
2: mind. We also know that
1: FGFR inhibition is expected to reduce the immune evasion and increase sensitivity to immunotherapy. There are a number of trials such as this one which is a combination of rogaratinib and atezolizumab in patients who have FGFR1 and 3-messenger RNA-positive urethelial cancer. In this study, patients are randomized between rogaratinib and atezolizumab versus placebo and atezolizumab. This study will be presented at an upcoming meeting. At ASCO GU. the NORS study was presented, which is a similar kind of study with another FGFR inhibitor or dafotinib and a PG1 inhibitor. I'd like to conclude by saying that in terms of advanced urothelial cancer, there's a high mutational complexity with the potential for many neoantigens that can trigger an immune response. Immunotherapy has definitely arrived for urothelial cancer, both in the first-line cisplatin-eligible and in second-line therapy for those patients who have failed combination cisplatin chemotherapy. The combinations in first line, the study with the atezolizumab and GEM and platinum are very exciting and interesting new data, as well as the switch maintenance therapy results are of extreme interest, and we'll be waiting to hear those results at ASCO. Antibody drug conjugates and FGFR inhibition are also here to stay. Our armamentarium has really increased enormously over the last few years. We have
2: definitely made progress. I'd like to thank you very much for your attention.
0: All right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sternberg, uh, so much for um, that uh, pre recorded lecture. Um, I'm just going to go through and see. We do have a couple questions, uh, Dr. Sternberg, if you're uh, on and um, Wouldn't we mind. Um, well, let me for those who are, uh, have tuned in just to um, reiterate, Dr. Sternberg. Uh, you know, she's a leading expert in medical oncology, GU cancers. Initially, doing conduct uh, conductor training here in New York City at Memorial. She was out in Italy um, doing some amazing things out there, and eventually came back to New York, where she's now clinical director of the Englander Institute for Precision Medicine. And a medical oncologist at Cornell and the uh, the New York Presbyterian system. So we're so fortunate to have her here. Um, one of the first questions that someone had asked uh, Dr. Sternberg, um, if if you um, if you wouldn't mind answering, is how do we as you know the u- urologic oncologist, how do we develop you know what like the the relationship with our medical oncology um, colleagues to optimize therapy for Patients, especially now, even uh, a lot of these immunotherapeutics are being used in the um, neoadjuvant setting, uh, the adjuvant setting and all that. How do we best optimize, um, uh, you know, those, those types of uh, relationships uh, to, to kind of better care for our patients? Oh, I'm sorry. I think you're still muted, uh, Dr. Sternberg. If, let me see if, um, there we go. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Thank
1: okay. you. <laughs> okay, great. So I'm in New York City in the rain. I don't know what my background is right now.
0: It, look, it looks nice. It
1: looks like I'm in Italy, huh? <laughs> but I'm not.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I think that that's a very uh, important question. And I think multidisciplinary um, teams are what is the key here. Um, Uh, immunotherapy is not only used in uh, metastatic disease and neoadjuvant setting, it's also been approved um, for patients even with superficial disease who have failed PCG. So I think that um, those those are patients who um, usually... refusing cystectomy that have gone on to these trials, and the trial that was positive was the trial with pembrolizumab uh, for patients with superficial disease. It wasn't the topic of this lecture, but I think that um, the fact that um, medical oncologists and urologists and radiation oncologists must work together uh, clearly in order to take care of these patients, but not only once we're taking care of patients with uh, immunotherapies, there could be multi-system problems or side effects. So we need to work with our pulmonary specialists, our cardiologists, our endocrinologists as well, because um, I think it's really essential. Um, At Cornell, we have a meeting every single Monday afternoon in which the radiologists are there, the pathologists are there, the urologists, oncologists, the um, radiation oncologists. And we discuss every Practically every new case that we see. And I think that it's a, uh, aside, aside for being available whenever, or by telephone, and now by Zoom, I would say. But um, I think it's really essential that we work together and that the patient, what we do is best for the patient, which is not that it's my patient or your patient. Um, I personally am married to a urologist, so I never had particular problems with getting <laughs> along with urologists. And uh, I've had, always had a good relationship since I worked at Sloan Kettering with my urology colleagues. And um, I hope this uh, COVID will be over soon so that they can start operating again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, along those lines, um, someone was asking, I mean, uh, you know, we are, as a department at Columbia, we have constant meetings about how to, um, at least the faculty do, not so much the residents, but um, how to best prioritize uh, surgeries during this time. And along Mm -hmm. the same lines, uh, for chemo, uh, these immunotherapeutics, all that, how what are you guys doing to best strategize, best prioritize patients um, to receive those? I'm assuming the chemo chemo center, they're not, they were not open uh, completely, um, or if not, they were shut down for a period of time and, thinking about opening up. How, how are you guys dealing oh, with that?
1: During COVID, I had a, uh, a Zoom conference yesterday with about, there were 60 people on the line that were prostate cancer experts from all around the country, not just New York. Oh. And what I understood clearly was that all around the country, um, patients and doctors are suffering and that uh, research in oncology has been put aside for research in COVID at, at this moment. And so we have, we, but not only we at Cornell, also at Columbia, even at, at, at von Kettering as well, have, have put aside the uh, enrolling patients into new clinical trials. I would say maybe we could say that those, we need those clinical trials to move forward. But since they haven't proven to be effective, some of the therapies such as adjuvant therapy for bladder cancer after a patient has had chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, and they still have muscle invasive disease, there's no uh, known treatment that is really uh, approved for these patients. So we are enrolling patients who in, into a study for these patients with pembrolizumab versus observation. That's one of the ongoing studies. And we're not allowed to do that at this very moment during the COVID crisis because both Columbia and uh, Cornell, as you know, are part of the same system. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it's not just our hospitals. It's, it's all over the country not enrolling new patients into, let's say, unproven therapies. But we are allowed to continue um, even experimental treatments that are ongoing in patients that have already been enrolled. Um, This is countrywide, and I hope it's short-lived. We all hope it's short-lived, but that's what is really happening now. And most of the operating rooms, particularly in New York City, have been taken over as intensive care units for patients with COVID, and our surgeons are uh, unable to operate. And going back to the multidisciplinary approach, I work with our surgeons every single day. And if they're unable to operate, they're unable to to evaluate patients, they're unable to send patients. Uh, my urologist has 70 patients on his waiting list to operate. He's sure. operating, but he has to uh, appeal to the hospital um, board of directors for every case that he wants to operate. Sure. So, I mean, they've taken up the ICUs all over the country for the COVID patients. And we really do hope that this... Uh, at least this wave <laughs> will be over soon so that we can get back to normal because all of the hospitals are suffering in the no, country.
0: It's true, I mean, we, yeah, we see it daily too and we're trying to um, kind of pick the best strategy to now um, select patients that would benefit the most from having their operations um, as soon as possible. Um, of course. Just, just to go along, the pre, to kind of go back to the pre-COVID era, one of the issues with you know these uh, small molecule inhibitors, the 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 monoclonal antibody, the antibodies has been cost, um, cost of these for the patient, cost per um, cycle, all that kind of stuff. How how do you see costs fitting into? I mean, if you do, if we start seeing major benefits. Um, what, whether it's neoadjuvant, superficial adjuvant, what, what, for the metastatic setting, what have you, how do you see costs playing a role into um, overall delivery of this care?
1: I, I don't know that I'm the best one to discuss costs since I've worked in a public health system in Italy That's... for 40 <laughs> years and I've just been back here for a year and a half and I'm, I don't know that, that I understand all of all of the costs, but I think that sure. um, many of the, the, the medicines that I discussed were in the context of clinical trials. And I've used many of these drugs in the context of clinical trials where there usually is no particular cost to the patient. Once they are FDA approved, the majority of these drugs are um, paid for by Medicare or by most insurance company. But that's not all the drugs. And we find uh, problems with some patients having high co-pays and they can't uh, necessarily pay. And that's something that's... um, It's new to me, it's a kind of an anathema to me um, after having worked in the public health system. But I'll say that um, drugs that were approved um, in America, um, we've had the FDA inspect our place in Rome, Italy, and the drugs were approved the next day in Italy, for instance, um, abiraterone for prostate cancer. We didn't have access to that really in Italy for another two years. So whereas the public health system in theory, it takes care of everyone. It takes care of everyone at a at a different level than sure. than uh, than in the United States, where there's access to many, many more drugs for more people obviously we can see what's happening also in the covid crisis and what happens all over the world is those people who are more indigent have do have less access even if they have medicare or medicaid they have less access to physicians they trust physicians less they have more comorbidities and they 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 do have less access to the drugs but i don't think i'm the best one to discuss no, that no, particular no. aspect
0: it's no problem um uh, it's just something i think um you know during again, during residency, we are not exposed to any sort of the cost aspect of care. And it's something, you know, because the field is changing so much. um, It's something I think people are interested in learning about. Along the same lines, I think a lot of the residents are very interested, if if you don't mind, um, you know, for those who decide to pursue a career in urologic oncology, and a lot of their patients kind of um, enter this realm of medical therapy for some of their uh, cancers. What kind of side effects, complications associated with these um, immunotherapies should we look for? What are the most common um, and um, how can we best optimize? I know one of our urologic oncologists in our department works very closely and sees patients with our medical oncologists on the same day. So they they optimize care that way, but that doesn't happen all the time. So for us who don't necessarily know, um, what goes into um, the day-to-day with regards to get, providing these uh, therapies and the side effects? What should we look out for? Um,
1: most of the immunotherapies in terms of, of giving the immunotherapies, I, I don't think that most urologists are really that interested in themselves giving the immunotherapy no. mm-hmm. from what I understand because they are intravenous treatments. They're usually given either every three weeks or every four weeks depending upon the immunotherapy. And um, uh, they're, they're usually, to my knowledge, given by medical oncologists up up until this point at least, um, even the patients with superficial bladder cancer um, who were absolutely refusing um, to go on to cystectomy after failing BCG, um, I, I was the one treating those at, at, well, Cornell, those patients. So I don't think that the urologists were, they'd rather be doing surgery than than. Sure. Taking care of, the, uh, of these patients, but they need to, they are still responsible with the medical oncology for these patients. If they have side effects, they will be calling their urologist as well as their medical oncologist. So they obviously need to know about all the side effects. And um, I think that what's been incredible for me is first, the immunotherapies, um, they don't work in everyone, but when they work, they, they can be really highly effective. But one must be aware if someone, for example, the, one of the more, more common uh, side effects could be pulmonitis. Yeah. It's a, and especially in this day and, the, day and era where pulmonitis is something we're all really scared about. I mean, how do you tell the difference between a COVID pulmonitis and a, a pulmonitis due to immunotherapy? And not, I think that the, the pulmonitis uh, due to immunotherapy often is not accompanied by a fever. It's a little bit different pulmonitis. And when you stop the immunotherapy, it often goes away and... and some patients you can rechallenge them again, and they won't have it again. But in others, you you can rechallenge them, and they will have pulmonitis. So that's been the worst side effect for me. In patients who are responding beautifully, mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned with the pembrolizumab data, patients who like with metastatic disease, even to the liver, I didn't. Maybe I should have shown some of those CT scans. I forgot to do that. Um, but even with to the liver, I have patients who are off treatment for years and they have complete response. that 's very, very long lasting. I mean, I've never seen that with any chemotherapy that we used in the past. So I think that's a remarkable breakthrough for, for those few patients who do respond so very well. Um, the other, the, all the immunologic side effects can occur like um, colitis. That's why patients with um, uh, ulcerative colitis or colitis are usually not put on these trials. Although we showed that patients with rheumatoid arthritis and colitis can, if they're well-controlled, receive therapy with atezolizumab in the sole trial. And patients can get um, pancreatitis, hypophysitis, myositis. I've seen like one of each of these things. Sure. And, uh, working with your endocrinologist is really essential. We always have to measure uh, thyroid function when mm-hmm. we're giving these drugs as well. Um, so they, these can cause these different... Uh, immunologic side effects, many of them are endocrine or, or myositis even. And I think that the, the most common are the, perhaps the, the pulmonitis that we've seen. Um, but there, there are other other side effects as, as well. And I think that once a patient is, is on immunotherapy, we need to be very aware of these. Um, what's happening now in, in this uh, era of COVID is that we are pushing some of the patients out who are responding well. They're not necessarily coming in We're letting them skip one immunotherapy dose because immunotherapy actually lasts a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we feel that probably we're, even patients on trials, we're not compromising that much by letting them perhaps skip one dose, not coming into New York City just right now. And if they skip one dose, probably they'll, they'll continue to be responding. And uh, we don't really know if we give immunotherapy and we increase the T cell response, if those patients might even have a, a better chance of fighting off COVID, or if there will be more compromised, we don't really have enough data yet to, to um, know that. Chuck Drake at, at your institution at Columbia, is an immune, uh, immunologist, uh, thinks that perhaps we will increase their ability to fight off infection by increasing their T cell responses. It's one hypothesis. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's an interesting one. And you can just take advantage of this uh, time to kind of expand on that idea. I think it's great. Um, Well, Dr. Sternberg, thank you uh, so much. I mean, it was truly an honor to have um, you and Dr. Bachner with us today for uh, this Empire Lecture Series that we started for residents to kind of take advantage of the didactic aspect while we are, you know, out of the operating room. So thank you so much. Please stay safe um, right across the park from us Um, and for everyone
2: else.